Welcome back to the Armor of Light podcast. My name is Brady and joined as always uh, with James and Jared. And we're here to talk today about genuine masculinity, true manhood, and what it means to be a man. Gentlemen, let's start off the conversation with describing some of the modern misconceptions or like attacks on manhood that we hear today. I'd say just overall, there's this idea that men and women need to be the same and that as a man, you don't have a specific role and a specific set of responsibilities that you're supposed to contribute to a family, to your workplace. And I think that it stems from just these some of these ideas about how men display toxic masculinity, which is better referred to as emasculation. Um, I believe that when men aren't told the power that they have, it really comes down to, I mean, it's a little bit cheesy, but one of my favorite quotes has always been, with great power comes great responsibility. And if you watch the Spider-Man movies with that kind of mindset, you start to understand that Spider-Man it was really a good tale about masculinity in a way because it was Peter Parker learning that he couldn't just use his power to beat up the boys who were hurting him like before. He couldn't use it, like in the third movie, he couldn't use it to get uh, the bump up in his job. He couldn't use it to knock down other people. There was a lot of just ways that he learned that with the power that he had, there's a lot of responsibility that comes with that. And the responsibility that we have as men is to use our innate characteristics for good. Yeah, I think power is really interesting there because today when we think of power, we think of somebody that's abusing their power, someone that's kind of like a tyrant. But traditionally speaking, power is something that you only gained through competence. And like in the example of Spider-Man, he became good at being Spider-Man. He learned how to control um, the supernatural abilities that were given to him, and he used that, that power for good. So I think ultimately the attack on um, masculine power, you could say, is really just an attack on competence. Uh, since we have nothing really to shoot for in society these days, anybody that has any sort of goal or aspiration or something that they want to be competent at is basically demonized. Yeah, there's a big attack on competence as well as competition. And there's a big attack on ambition, as it, and it's seen as yeah, this like power-hungry, tyrannical drive that a man shouldn't have, but I mean, it, it's totally natural. It's especially the competition. Like that's how men learn. Um, we don't we don't necessarily learn uh, in the same way as women. I mean, like I know, the, like the school system, like when everyone's sitting down, learning, listening from a teacher, like 
that's not everyone. Like some people, and I think more often than not, those people are men, learn from, from doing things and they do from learning from experience rather than from words or writing. Um, so that's also an attack. Yeah, I'd say that. And um, I like what you said about ambition because that's really what I think is one of the big distinguishing parts about it is that ambition is going to be there regardless. It's where you channel that. And men are being told to suppress, suppress, suppress it because of the fact that there are a lot of forces in our our world today that say that ambition is trumping someone else. You're stomping on someone else's ability to be able to help themselves. And in all actuality, it, I mean, it comes down to like what you were talking about with competence in the free markets. Competition doesn't knock someone down. It forces them to get better and match the level that you're at and then increase. That's why I always love the sports metaphors about how sports are just a microcosm of the real world. In athletics, I mean, just at a micro level, in order to play the position that you're at, you have to learn how to be better than the next guy who's trying to play that position as well. So you learn off of each other. And when you have two guys who are really strong at learning that, they get better. And then when you get into a game, those people playing that position, like nose tackle in football or uh, like second base in baseball, when you have people who are excelling at how they can make that position more unique to them and how they can play to their strengths in that position, that person plays better and the whole team as a result plays better. That's the way it is with the world. And we need that ambition in order to strive for that competition. If we don't have that motivating result, then we resort to using that ambition in ways that are actually toxic and emasculated as we've seen today with such a lack. I mean, the lack of fathers in the household, you see, um, people just getting men getting scared, especially like when, or if they're, they're in a situation where they have a pregnancy they weren't expecting or out of wedlock and then they just leave. Well, they're not accepting their responsibility and ultimately their ability to raise that child, expose them to the real world and stuff that needs to be there or else that child's going to have to pick it up on their own. And that's going to be a lot heavier weight for that child than it is for the, the father. And just overall, it's the, um, just overall, it's that lack of ambition, lack of courage, being taught those things that really keeps us from growing to be the best men that we can be on a micro level and on a macro level changing the world for the better yeah i think that ambition is something that's part of us and whether we um, use it for the good is basically up to us so i think a lot of times we see a lot of misdirected ambition in a lot of men today they're they want to see how many women they can sleep with uh, they don't actually their ambition isn't 
directed towards building something. It's about uh, ambition of the self. It's not about ambition of serving others. And I think traditionally, men have a desire to serve, but we're told that 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 desire to serve isn't necessarily a good thing. So then we think, okay, well, this ambition must be directed somewhere else. And if we're not serving somebody else, then we're serving ourselves. And I, I think that's kind of the core of uh, men today is they're so lost because they don't know who to serve. So they serve themselves instead. So that idea of ambition is, is crucial and it needs to be directed towards something higher. Yeah, and I'd say that men today seek approval in the wrong places and they seek their uniqueness through their self in the wrong ways. So yeah, I see that in like the gym, like with the gym rats, like it is a it is a manly thing to be strong and to develop your strength, but when you're in the gym like by doing bicep curls and you're just drooling at yourself in the mirror, <laughs> like you're you're missing the point or if you're getting strong so that you can do these mighty deeds of of strength, but then you don't use that strength to open the door uh, for the girl who walks in or, you know, help someone out. It's like you're missing the point of what strength is. It's not so that you can, it's not for yourself. Like strength is meant to serve others, to help the weak. Right. Yeah. When you're doing the curls, it should always be for the girls. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, yeah. And it's not just for them to look upon too. The reason why women are typically attractive to that that muscular stature it's because of the way that that guy can serve them and if you're just using it for looks i mean well that's where women are different than men their their appeal is not entirely on the looks you know their their appeal is how can this guy serve me so that's what i think we're really kind of driving diving into today is what are we supposed to do as men and how can we break up from this the these ideas of of men being oppressive and men being toxic just in general from their as a natural point because men aren't men are made made for something good but if you just tell them to suppress, suppress, suppress that, that's how you get into a world where chaos ensues, where those men are going to outlet that, those feelings, those natural desires to grow and build and do all these things. They're going to start building the wrong things. They're going to start channeling it in the wrong ways. Yeah, there's that, I guess you'd call it a meme circulating around the internet where it's like good times create weak men, weak men create hard times, hard times create great men, great men create good times, and the cycle continues. And I've been trying to figure out where we are in that cycle right now. <laughs> are we, we're definitely, I think we're in the weak men, but I don't know if we've reached the bottom of the hard times yet. I, I would say one of those, definitely. Mm -hmm. We're certainly not in an age of, of great men, I don't think. Yeah. So it's up to us and hopefully our listeners out there to figure out what it actually means to be a great man. Because there's a, there's definitely a demand for it, and we need to fill that void. I would definitely say, like, a first, if we can come up with practical steps on how to develop your manhood, I would say the first step would be really engage in self-reflection. 
I think a, a, a true man or you know a good man will know himself. I mean, it's I don't know what the Latin or Greek is, but it's like a very famous philosophical phrase, like know that know thyself. And that's just the idea that the way you interact with the world is different than everyone else. So you can't you can't follow these like blanket rules without viewing the rules through the lens of how you operate. Like, so start thinking, like spend time alone in prayer, ideally, but just time alone with yourself thinking like, okay, what are my opinions on these things? What, what do I want for my life? What do I, am I happy right now? What am, what, what in my day causes me stress? How do I avoid those things? What, oh, do I like doing these things? Why not? Like, you have to know yourself. And then from there, you can start to develop and orient your life so that you do more of the things that you like to do and you develop the things that you need to work on. Um, yeah. yeah, I'd say that plays into having a right, the right idea about emotional intelligence and going about it the right way. I think there are a lot of ideas about emotional intelligence being know when you're mad and suppress that anger. And then there's a better idea of it, which is know when you're mad and know how to express that anger in a way that isn't going to, um, I mean, know in the context, what's the best way to express that anger in a way that's more productive. I always hear this, this trope about men need to be able to cry. I agree to an extent. Men need to be able to cry, but I don't think that it's appropriate for men to be crying all the time. And I think that the problem with this idea is crying doesn't solve anything. If you're just going to sit there and sob about the circumstances that you're in, you're just going to be sitting there sobbing about the circumstances that you're in. Nothing's going to change. And I remember getting into this debate one time in a class with a classmate about that. It's like, men need to be able to cry. Yes. But what does that actually solve? And there's times when you're going to be in that position where you need to cry because you just, you're expressing your, that deep longing for being able to solve something. And a lot of times there's things that you can't solve, but Sitting there and being crying about it doesn't solve a thing. So you use that sadness to say, what can I do to make this better? And then you take that action into your own hands and you do something about it. Yeah, I like that idea of being solution-oriented. Because I think as guys, we are very solution-oriented. And everyone always jokes like when a woman is telling a man their problems they're not looking for a solution but a man is always actually looking for a solution and I never really thought about that the difference between crying and actually looking for a solution because I think it is important for men to be vulnerable with not with everybody you have to be very selective with who you uh, are opening up to and I think one of the misconceptions is that you need to be open to everybody you should be able to cry in front of everybody and I don't I don't think that's true but I like how crying doesn't actually solve anything. Like, actually get up and, and do something. 
And when you're crying, you can, you want somebody to feel sorry for you. And maybe somebody should feel sorry for you, but when everyone's crying together, feeling sorry for each other, what's actually, what's actually happening? How much of Job was Job sitting and crying? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I, I was just listening to what you were saying, Jerry. <laughs> I could imagine all women listening to this, like rolling their eyes. Uh, because, and honestly, this is probably one of the biggest uh, or, like, clearest differences between the sexes is, like, crying and emotional, uh, I don't know, just emotions in general are a very integral part of, of, of a woman's way of thinking or dealing with problems, especially. Um and so they, they do need to cry, and it's, like, important uh, for them or perhaps more emotional men. But I think for us, um, or, like, the the goal for men should be, like, crying or, like, dealing with emotions should be in private or with a very select few, like you were saying, James. So, like, crying to God or, you know, maybe if you have a spouse or something, like, Maybe you need some dedicated time to, like, I don't know, be heard or whatever. But, like, on the general, it's the role of the man to be that, like, steady steady hand. Like, at a funeral, like, at least the patriarch of whoever's, like, maybe it's the, the dad if, or the, the oldest son or something like that. Like, they need to be firm and, like, the rock for the family. I, I don't think it would be appropriate if they were just – or it wouldn't be ideal if they were just crying all over the place. Um, of course they do need to deal with that grief and uh, I'm not, we're not trying to discount emotions, but, um, it's a role to like be that rock, especially for the women in the room, like when they're dealing with problems or whatever. And I would say it evolves over time. So like as a child, little boys cry, but, and so we wouldn't say like, stop crying. We would say, okay, have that emotion, deal with it, channel it. And then get up, get up and move, get up and, and try again. That's the, that's the big point, big point. And then as they come into teenagers and then college and into adulthood, that time where it takes to handle your emotions and get up shrinks and you're more, it's more of a reflex. So that by the time you're an adult, you don't even need to cry. You, you, like you register it, you deal with it and you get up and move on. Yeah, and if you don't cry um, when you're watching The Lion King when Mufasa dies, I mean, you're a robot. <laughs> but yeah, I, it's funny. I'm an absolute mess when I watch like sad movies. It's one of the few times that I actually cry pretty regularly, I guess. But like when I experience physical pain or when somebody disappoints me, like it doesn't. I don't even think about crying whatsoever. I don't. I don't know why that is, but. Yeah, movies, movies, songs make me an emotional wreck. But I think it goes back to that idea of when you're younger, you do cry, but you channel that into a solution. Like, I'm thinking about when I was growing up, I'd always play sports outside with my brother and all of our friends on the block. And typically it would end up with somebody crying, going home, uh, somebody has a bloody nose or something. But over time, that stopped. Like, when you got a bloody nose, you realized okay, maybe I shouldn't have tried to tackle that guy that way because I'm the one that actually ended up getting hurt. But it it causes you to actually look for a solution instead of just sitting there sobbing 
and yeah, like what you were saying over time, over time, that, that emotion is redirected in other ways. And I'd like to point out like an example similar to that with a friend of mine who growing up as kids, we would always go out and play football in the yard. Um, and a lot of times it was out at my grandma's house that we would go out and play. So we'd, we'd go and we'd play like football, uh, kickball, baseball. We'd do a ton of things. And this kid would always, he'd play and he'd be all excited and then he'd get down to the nitty gritty if there was a time when, um, you know, he didn't catch the ball and it, and it like hit him in the face or... You know, he got bumped a little too hard. It was just like, the you know, here come the waterworks. And it was like, then he would go tell his mom. His mom would, like, address the situation, and then we weren't allowed to play that sport that way anymore. So that's how, like, like tackle football in the yard with – with your friends turned into two hand touch football where it was like, Oh, you know, stop. Don't, don't be physical and stuff. And so it, when you have that element where someone's going to be crying, someone's going to be hurt on every situation of discomfort, then it's going to take away from what you're doing and ultimately make it, put it down like because each time someone cries about something a new rule gets put in place and then this new rule is gonna you know it's gonna be you'll, you'll still be able to play the game but you have this new rule you gotta follow but then that new rule you have to add on to it the next time the kid has an incident and all of a sudden the game's to a point where you're following so many rules there's no fun no expression at all so you don't get to to channel it through that sport anymore you're having to find a different way to um, do things and I guess that I'd say that's on a macro level in a real world level you can say that about a lot of things like people who get hurt by the littlest things and don't just accept that discomfort as part of life then they start trying to force us to follow along with their their discomfort and it it brings down from the ability to have conversations in public spaces i mean how many times have you guys been able to have a good discussion between your professors and the students everything is just kind of call and response everyone's in the in the your lecture hall is going to be saying the same thing as the professor because they don't want a bad grade. They don't want to upset somebody and have these bad repercussions. So they just don't speak. They just don't express what they mean to express. They don't ask the questions that they have. So when you have this, this culture of all discomfort leading to emotional sadness and emotional distress, then you're not getting to that place where the culture accepts, I mean, where the, the culture can progress and bounce ideas off of each other and come to an ultimate agreement because you're having to cushion for those people who are 
not able to take it like a man. Yeah, I think that leads into another great uh, aspect of manhood. It's like how we uh, can respond to conflict. But first, I want to add maybe a last note on emotional intelligence. We're not advocating like stoicism, where just absolute rejection of any emotion and you're just this rock. We're advocating for self-control. So we want we want good strong men to be to be uh, aware of their emotions, but to not be emotional, right? Like there's a difference. So back to like the crying in movies. <laughs> there's two scenes that will always get me to cry. Any scene where there's a son and a dying or sick mother, I'll resonate with the son and I'm out. I'm out. Like Christmas shoes, you know the song in the movie, Christmas shoes where the mom has cancer and the little boy is like trying to save, scrounge up couch money for these like new shoes so she looks pretty in heaven. I have not seen that movie. Oh that my gosh. Like I need don't, to. don't, yeah. do don't, don't, you'll cry. Um, so that'll give me a tear up. And then any scene with like a father and a sick daughter or anything like that. I resonate with the father and just like this instinctive fatherly emotion wells up and instantly cry. So I would say being aware of those kind of emotions helps guide me and my decisions on like how I want to be, um, how I want to act as a man. So like my role as a son, you know, the, the fact that I emotion, um, resonate emotionally with those kind of scenes makes me reflect and want to be a better son. Or the fact that I resonate with those fatherly um, scenes makes me want to be a father um, in some way. I'd say just another example of like where emotional intelligence is, is key is like when I'm going and playing pickup basketball, most of the time I'm just doing it for the exercise. I'm not a very good basketball player, but I still am competitive. And so I'm going to do my best to try to, if I'm not scoring on the other end, I'm going to try to at least stop the guy from scoring on my end. And Eventually, you get to that point where I'm, I get to that point where I'm just tired, and if I let something go, like if I let someone get a basket on me, it just eats at me, and I get upset. And um, one person I know who uh, his name rhymes with Valboy Barlson. He can pick that up pretty easily when he sees me like have that kind of upset emotion and he can just go at it and it just drives me insane. And so the best way to do that is you have to control your emotion because otherwise other people are going to get the best of you. So you have to channel that into a way where it's like, oh, he sees this. I can't let this happen. I can't put this emotion on my sleeve. I need to channel this in a better way that will be where I will be able to stop this from happening as opposed to like stop someone from driving on me as opposed to just like thinking about how mad I am, you know, because it doesn't do anything. So. So that leads right into how men ought to handle conflict. And this can be anything from like standing up in class to like saying, speaking your opinion uh, physical altercations on the schoolyard or like in the business world? How do you handle negotiations or difficult decisions? 
Uh, I would say conflict is, I mean, I, I'm very, I have a very agreeable personality, um, borderline feminine. <laughs> so I do not like conflict in the slightest. But because I think I've done so much reflection and uh, I'm aware of that, I prefer conflict immediately. So I'll, I'll try to dig up conflict too because I know conflict addressed now will result – it won't foster and, and snowball later on. So because I don't like conflict so much, I will purposefully try to bring it up or solve it if I notice it like as soon as possible. Yeah, I've kind of noticed I'm kind of the same way. At least I used to be very agreeable. I've been trying to get more like confrontational. Uh, but that doesn't mean intentionally instigating something that doesn't need to be confrontational right. at all. It's just kind of standing standing strong in what you believe in. And if that leads to conflict, you accept that. So be it. You don't back down, but you're not looking you're not looking to pick a fight, which I think is what a lot of people think of when you think of somebody that's um, I guess good at conflict. Is there someone that's constantly trying to fight, look at somebody, looking for somebody to beat down because it makes them feel better about themselves. But that's not the type of conflict that we're talking about. We're not talking about that tyrant like we talked about earlier. We're talking about naturally conflict will arise when you have differing opinions on something or you're not sure what the correct course of action is to go um, in your job, at, in class, if the professor is saying something that you disagree with. So I think a lot of the ways we should address conflict is simply standing, I'm going to steal from Jordan Peterson here, but just standing up straight with your shoulders back. That's so, so simple, but it shows that you are actually, you have courage, that you actually do believe that what you think is the truth is the truth, and you're not afraid for any conflict that can arise from that. I'm disappointed that you beat me to <laughs> mentioning Jordan Peterson first, um, but I was also going to quote from him. Um, he he said, in a, I can't remember what the episode was, but he, he said before that like the opposite of war is not peace. The opposite of war is politics. It's negotiation. And I understand both of those words are very, you know, people don't really know what they mean, but I was, yeah, it's very hot button issue, especially politics. Like, I feel like that word's ruined. But the opposite of war isn't the absence of conflict, peace. People think that's what peace means. The, the opposite of war is civil uh, negotiation on what, how we're going to resolve this conflict. So it's not that no troubles ever come up. It's that when they do, you can confidently and civilly uh, reconcile them, come up with a new strategy implement that into society society and then go on your way uh, it's not because once if you try to get rid of conflict the only way to do that is through force <laughs> so it's like people think they want peace in like the absence of conflict but that just turns into tyranny yeah that's why i think it's so dangerous when we start saying that speech itself can be violent because mm. that is our alternative Speech is how we negotiate, it's how we resolve conflict. Right, right. So one of the things that I think is important as men that make us competent, we keep going back to that word, is being articulate and being able to express what we, what we believe to be true. 
but we have to know ourselves in order to express ourselves. And I think a lot of times uh, we don't actually know how to articulate what we think, what we feel, what we think is the truth, because making any sort of claim about what is the truth is a sign of arrogance, which is the opposite of, I think, what true masculinity should be. It should be humility, but I'm going to steal a G.K. Chesterton quote. I don't think we've used one in a while. He said, today, um, humility has moved into the, I'm, I'm butchering the quote, but humility has moved into the wrong um, organ of the human. It's a, You were supposed to be um, unsure of yourself, but not unsure of the truth. Now people are sure of themselves, but are so afraid to make any claim about the truth. And that is a false sense of humility. And I think when we hear of confidence, we think of arrogance, but that's not the case. Yeah, and I'd say that that kind of plays into the agreeableness that we were talking about earlier, where if you're not agreeing on what is true, you're focusing on what my truth is, and you're not enforcing that on someone else. So you're not genuinely loving someone else who says, my truth is that smoking a pack a day is good for me. It's not. So, but we're told in a, this day and age that it's better to be agreeable than to express that and rise that conflict. And I think that that there's an important thing about that in knowing when to be agreeable and knowing where you need when that line is crossed. I think there's so much of a lack of ability to set clear boundaries and establish those lines that it causes us to be more aggressive in those times when the conflict arises. It causes our emotions to be more swelled up because you've been suppressing it for so long. The best way to, one of the things that really needs to change and one of the things that men need to be better at and one of the things we can learn as men is to establish those lines and enforce those lines so you can joke around with your friends but there's sometimes when that joke goes a little too far you know if someone insults your sister that's when you need to stand up you need to know how to like put that line in the sand and you know there's times when that happened just like riffing with friends of mine like someone said something about someone's sister and they got punched for it they knew not to cross that line again and like I think you know it wasn't like it was like a super aggressive thing the guy just crossed the line and there if you were just gonna say like don't say that about my sister it'll be just like oh why you know it'll be an instigational kind of rise to where it becomes a real fight so there's times when I think in our, our culture we have lost that ability to be able to channel aggression properly towards the proper targets. And I think that that's important because, if you, again, if you hold that in and wait until he gets just keeps instigating and instigating and instigating, then it becomes a full-fetched fight where the, to the point where the man feels completely challenged and so he either steps up and has this big fight with someone or the man goes back feeling like 
what I was just standing for was wrong. And then they suppress it because obviously it's not right for someone to insult your sister, especially in a derogatory way. But if you're just going to keep letting this guy instigate and instigate and you decide not to confront that, then you get, you know, you just feel defeated. Yeah. In the spirit of conflict, I'm going to push back on you a little bit there. Mm. <laughs> Bring out the boxing gloves. Uh, I would, I would kind of argue that resorting to physical aggression and let's use the example of someone insulting your sister. I would say that that is an inability to control your emotions like we talked about earlier. I think if you were to be stern and saying, stop talking about my sister that way, and people actually recognize when somebody is being, when somebody's being firm, I think. And we resort to violence or aggression when we don't know how to be firm in other areas, which is why we think aggression is the only way to assert um, firmness. But I think you'll garner a lot more respect if you like stand up straight, say, don't talk to, don't talk about my sister that way instead of resorting to physical aggression. And I'd say, yeah, that I would agree to that to the point where you need, if you say it firmly that you can't say something about my sister like that, I agree. I agree that you can't just immediately say, oh, buddy, you just, that joke was a line. <laughs> Here it comes. It it needs to be the enforcement of that firmness where, listen, if you say something like that again about my sister, I'm going to slug your shoulder. like, And then you follow through on that. Because, and I think that th there's a reasonable, like, if that person doesn't stop, you've established a boundary. You've been reasonable with him saying, like, that's not something you can say because it's wrong to do. And if they cross that line, then I think you are, I don't think that it's emotionally unintelligent or um, wrong to be able to say, knock it off. You know, there needs to be an enforcement of that. And I think that in our culture, there's, it's just, we're way too lenient on things. And I think that it would benefit a lot of people if boundaries were well-established and the correct boundaries, too, that were built on truth. Because then you're not playing in a world of fantasy and, and make-believe where there's a thousand genders. You're playing in a world where you're a man and you have a role in this world. Yeah, I think context is definitely important because a lot of people would be horrified to hear that oh if someone's insulting your sister just punch them but like if you're yeah. if you're friends with them and if you're with a bunch of guys like that would be that's normal for us this yeah. isn't this isn't something out of the ordinary but i i really liked um i mean the that situation where uh what was it chris rock and uh will smith or will smith <laughs> um thought that the only way to stand up for his wife was through slapping was through slapping chris rock and i think everybody agrees that he looked weak in that situation. He looked like he was not in control of who he was. And he didn't look like a man at all. It was, it was kind of sad to see. But it's because he doesn't know how to channel that, that aggression into firmness. Well, and I'd say on a deeper level, 
how he's standing up for the dignity of his marriage in that case, but how can he stand up with the dignity of his marriage after being told on live news that she's going to cheat on him and he has to be okay with that? You can't uphold the dignity of something that doesn't have dignity or where the dignity has been that tarnished. So that's a, ma- a case where you're right. The physical aggression comes from an emasculated man who feels his only resort is to force that aggression. Now, let's say that never happened with those public scandals about his wife. Will Smith has a much firmer ground to say, hey, knock it off. And because he upholds her in that dignity, if you're consistent about upholding her in that dignity, then they know that that's a line that they don't cross. But if you're if you're not consistent with it, where on one hand you're letting your wife scandalize your masculinity and your marriage as a whole, and then you're trying to uphold her dignity, well, there's nothing to stand on. There's no boundary established. It's like if you were playing football and your out-of-bounds line looked like an S. You know, there's going to be a place where you can stand in bounds, and then there's places where you can't, and then there's places maybe where there's like a hole in the line, and then that's still out of bounds, or you know, you just don't know. So people are going to tiptoe on that line and play in that gray area until that gray area is made clear. I think me, I'm on the side of, I'm on James' side that like violence or like a firm word should be the first, but I'm also. Uh, on Jerry's side where you have to be willing able and willing to result to violence or else your firm words mean nothing now between words and violence I think there's a very long distance and I think they're like um, two other methods to dissuade that kind of behavior is through is both through like influence so if you can use your words to like chastise him or make him feel bad for doing it. Like an example of, of Chris Ross, Chris Rock and uh, Will Smith. Will Smith's a funny guy. It would have been very easy for him to like tweet something later that night and totally like burn Chris Rock and it would have been it, right? It would have been. Um, or in the case of, if you know, if, uh, someone's making fun of your sister or whatever. Like if you can toss a joke at them or, or insult them in some like creative way and they'll, they'll know they'll get, you know, you know, but then also use your influence. So if you can get everyone else in the room on your side and like, they'll feel that social pressure, like, Oh crap, no one else is laughing. Like, so you can use your, your social influence to um, like make everyone kind of turn against them so that they know, Okay, I can't make those kind of jokes without serious serious social harm. Mm-hmm. Um, and if none of that works, of course you need to act on your your violence and whatever. I don't like violence, but I mean, yeah. It, again, if you're not willing to, if it if it if there's no line that someone can cross where you would punch them or you know fight them, then your words mean nothing before that before that line. And you're. You're really not free at that point in time either. No, they could just walk all over you. 
Exactly. I love this. The what was it? Captain America: Civil War, where um, Peggy Carter dies, and at the funeral, like the niece or whatever, was like, um, I forget the quote. Oh, but it's, it's she was some... discussing the how there's some things yeah, 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 yeah. that you. If the whole world is telling you to do something, like, move if you can. But if you can't, plant your feet like a tree and say, no, you move. Yeah. So it's like, that's, I always, I always, that always stuck with me. Yeah, I liked that one too. I couldn't, I almost forgot about that. But yeah, it's, it's so essential to have those boundaries that aren't, and don't put them in arbitrary places. Like, yeah, don't die on a hill that isn't worth dying on. And I'd say... To reconcile what we were talking about, I think that that's where the Chris Rock situation was different than if you're like hanging out with your sister. I mean, hanging out with your buddies and they insult your sister. Like, it's sorry. That's just like the easiest thing to go to for me. But like, um, because of the fact that he hadn't established himself and placed himself in a firm way that this is what happens if you insult my wife like he didn't enforce that when that whole tv interview came out Mm -hmm. so he didn't establish that so how was chris rock supposed to know that saying this joke was going to get him slapped on live tv right and he's a comedian too so unless of course it was planned for publicity whoa another time yeah that idea of aggression is definitely a more innately masculine thing like there's a reason when we go to war it's men that are fighting the war. There's a reason that almost all the violent crimes are committed by men. There's a reason that when there is a burning building, it's men that are running in to save to save someone. And I think denying that fact is not doing anybody any good. You're just denying reality. So it's up to us to figure out how we can actually um, guide that aggression towards something that is good. So like, Going to war, if it's a just war, if you're defending something that you love, that is, that's a very virtuous thing to do. But we see so many men commit violent crimes, and that's that same sort of aggression, but being garnered in the wrong way. So the aggression is going to, I guess, manifest itself some way. It needs to be uh, guarded and guided. Yeah, and I'd say, like, that's... Another thing that is traditionally masculine that needs to be enforced is being sporadic with your aggression versus being controlled and consistent with it. Because I think inconsistency, you you establish those lines and those boundaries, and you have something firm to go off of, a firm place to plant your feet, like you said, when you get into an argument. If you're consistent and always addressing the problem from that point of view. Yeah, and if you do things properly, like if you do plant your feet and if you are 100% willing to engage in that if necessary, you'll likely never need to do it. And I think that that, that kind of thing is the thing that there's, there's a way better way of being able to channel that, I believe, in our world as opposed to just telling men to suppress those feelings entirely. Because 
then you get men who are very sporadic in their anger and enforce and, and unleash it on people who don't deserve it or on things that don't deserve it. And it's that's not okay. Because that person, I mean, first off, he's not free enough to be able to control when this, you know, at that point in time, he's losing his control. Where if you've established something and you're firm in it and you've enforced it every time, then when that line gets crossed, you know that this is the point in time when all the respect for what you've said has been lost and that this needs to be addressed in a way that is beyond just physical, I mean, beyond just debate. So we've addressed why lines need to be established and why there needs to be an emotional intelligence about how to control and properly vent your emotions in the proper channels. And I think we really need to get to the why. And the why is because we need to know when we are able to sacrifice ourselves for truth and have that courage to stand up. So I think, again, we can play into um, the phrase that you were talking about, Brady, with being able to establish your feet in the sand and tell them to move. That takes courage. It takes courage to be able to... uh, be in that point where you're disagreeing and saying, this is what is true, and I stand up with this truth. And it goes hand in hand with sacrifice because you're willing to put it all on the line for the sake of the truth that you are defending. And as men, we are called to be defenders. I think that that's a really important thing that is lost in our world because we need to have, if we're not, gonna if we're gonna just be like sporadically aggressive then we're not channeling that aggression towards protecting what is right we're just protecting whatever we want to protect yeah going on that um i really i'm a member of the knights of columbus so i'm gonna make a plug for them really quick but that idea of that like imagery of a knight or a sword should um imbue some sort of desire to protect and what we are protecting is the truth, is Christ's bride, the church. And that is, that's a worthy thing to protect. But a lot of people are afraid of that sort of imagery at all. They're afraid of any sort of protection because that's acknowledging that what you are protecting maybe is weak, maybe you can't protect themselves. Why does something need help? Why, does, why do you need to protect a woman? Why do you need to protect the church? Can it not stand up for itself? No, that's that's not the case at all. That's how we sacrifice ourselves because we love the thing we are protecting so much that we're willing to lay down our life for it. In the same way that Christ gave himself on the cross for the church. Yeah, it's really taken the model from the master uh, as Jesus is the bridegroom of the church. In his passion, he sacrificed himself uh, for the good and glory of his bride as it's our role as men to sacrifice our lives for the good of the church, truth, women. Like that's again, like James was saying with the war, like that's why men are the ones to go into war, not only because we're more equipped with uh, strength and aggression, but it's, it's our role to sacrifice ourselves, to lay down our lives 
um, for our friends. That's that's what how Christ did it, and that's how we're going to do it. Yeah. A couple summers ago, uh, I just have an example. Um, a couple summers ago, my garage caught on fire, and my dad was out of town at the time. So it was uh, me, my friend, um, and my brother, and my mom. And my mom was freaking out. And all the dads, all the fathers in the neighborhood, all came to make sure that like my mom was okay. And like in the moment, I just thought, yeah, that's that's what you do. That's that's what men do. But then afterwards, I was thinking, like that was that was beautiful. That something bad was happening, but they knew to step up. Um, I didn't even think twice about like smoke was coming out of the garage. I was like, what the heck is going on? I didn't think twice of like, I can't do anything about it. My mind instantly turned into, okay, what do we need to do? How do we, is everybody safe? What do we, I don't know. My mind just started like going into, going into game mode. Mm-hmm. And all the other men in the neighborhood had the exact same reaction. Whereas the women were more of like watching what we were doing. And I'm not saying they had the wrong response. I'm just saying that those are completely different responses but you need both of those responses. Yeah, and I'd say, like, there's even a case to be made that um, sometimes that, that woman is there to get the man in gear. Like, hey, hey, do you see that over there? Her, she's alone. She doesn't have her husband there. Go help them. Like, yes, ma'am, of course. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. It's yeah, like oh, thanks for calling me <laughs> to be more masculine. Thank you for calling upon my masculinity. And then they run over there. Yeah, I would only assume that the the woman's response first, if the man wasn't doing anything, it wouldn't be that she go into the fire. It'd be, get off your ass, go into the fire. What are you doing? <laughs> You're like, a man, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. Like You're calling, right. Calling her I man. Am. To, yeah. And that's not, that's just, that's probably instinct. You know? mm-hmm. Just like it's our instinct to run into the fire, it's theirs to send us into the fire. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and I, and I think that there's, and I think we laugh because, you know, it is kind of funny. I think it's good, though, that, that women support that, too. Because at the end of that, the man feels like he's done something right. And he's done something good. He, and, and obviously it is. I mean, there's a, a woman with, with several kids outside who had just, had a fire at her house and there's no one there to like protect her and stuff like that there's no one there to console help her and then all the men are like this is our friend this is our friend's wife too like we are here to protect her while her man is out and i think that that's huge because not only are you standing up for the dignity of yourself and your family you're standing up for the dignity of your community and I think that that's another place where, you know, we need to lose this this kind of I do what I want, you do what you want, we just don't bother each other mentality. I think that there's a very important part of com- having a community and being ha- taking a responsibility and being a citizen of that community. Because like you said, James, those people stepped up for someone in need. And they did it in the right way, which bolstered the proper channels of masculinity. And they used it for good. And there was an ultimate good that came from it. I think 
to make a third superhero reference. Uh, two of the biggest like male characters in all of superhero ness is uh, Superman and Batman. And Superman, we know, is this impervious godlike man who, or alien, you know, and he, had, he you know, shoots lasers out of his eyes, can lift anything impervious to anything. And his only weakness is his moral character. Like he's he's unwilling to, well, not his weakness, it's his strength, but he's unwilling to kill people. He's unwilling to, to do all this stuff because, like, he just can't. But then you have Batman, who is human and so much darkness, so much tragedy. Um, and he's like this evil, you know, knight figure that does what needs to be done. And I honestly think Batman is a better, <laughs> better uh, example of manhood because we're not Superman. We're not, we're not God like superheroes. We're humans, and we have darkness. We have tragedy in our lives. And so, just like Batman, like he integrated that into his his psyche like he had a shadow like in psychology there's the shadow and you have to integrate your shadow um or else it'll take over and you'll be this evil tyrant either to yourself or to other people and so when we're talking about courage it's like batman is probably the the paragon of courage because he was scared of bats he was scared of like being alone and so he took that and became batman like he literally took fear and made it his power um and so I think it's it's our call to take our own shadow, integrate it, and make that our our superpower. To bring back the depth of superhero movies, right? like that's all I, I I've never heard that story about like the origins of Batman and stuff like that. Like, and going back to the Spider Man reference we talked about earlier, like these superheroes were established with a moral character mm-hmm. and not just great. a fancy costume. Yeah. Their bring, stories and bring stories back. are only good if they resonate with the truth or in some way they represent Christ. Right. Yeah. Like superhero movies, obviously they're not real. Lord of the Rings, obviously it's not real, but they all show something that is real. They all show a message that we all see in the real world. And because it's part of this story, it hits us so much deeper. Aren't you reading The Everlasting Man? Is it kind of like that? It's It's kind of like that. It's... It, t- it talks a lot about courage so far, and courage is such an interesting virtue, I guess. And mm-hmm. C.S. Lewis talks about that in the screw tape letters, because <laughs> ding, the <laughs> reference. So the screw tape letters is about the devil trying to basically tempt, figure out how to tempt somebody away from believing what is true. And the devil says that we have done a great job of convincing mankind that all the virtues are not necessary, but we have not been able to figure out how to get them to disdain courage because that is the hardest one to uh, make fun of somebody for. Because when somebody shows an example of courage, that's so lovely, that's so beautiful, it creates a visceral reaction that somebody knows, okay, I want to be like that. I don't know what caused that person to act courageously, but I want to be like that. And the devil hasn't been able to get rid of that reaction in us. That's super cool. I don't remember that. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. But that Batman, I liked how you talked about fear. Having courage is not the absence of fear Mm -hmm. at all. It's just not letting that fear stop you. And going back to that uh, self-knowledge idea, you have to know 
what you are afraid of because when you are put in a situation that might uh, create that fear within you, you know how to handle it. Yeah, I think that a famous John Wayne quote is having courage is to be afraid of what you're going into, but saddling up anyway or something along those lines. <laughs> and yeah, it's it's silly, but it does resonate with, and, and especially like as a young man, having those positive male influences and not those ones where it's, you're constantly having to question yourself, but you're affirmed in that proper channel of doing the right for the sake of what is good. Then you know from the get-go that you're not supposed to do things just sporadically. You're not supposed to, to bring out aggression at any time. You're supposed to have the courage to stand up when it's necessary, even when you're afraid of it, especially when you're afraid of it, like especially in the case of Batman, taking that fear and making it your strength. Uh, one of the ways that I've always been, uh, one of the things I've always kind of had in the back of my head, especially when it comes to making new friends and approaching job interviews and stuff like that, is everyone in the room is probably a little bit nervous. Everyone's going to come with not knowing uh, the situation. Everyone's going to come with that proverbial ice. And so you just have to know that and go in anyway as if they're your best friends. I mean, maybe, maybe channel some of it. Don't say like, Start getting personal, telling them your deepest stories and, you know, the <laughs> darkest parts of your life. But you just start talking to them as if they're a real person and not look at looking at them as if this is some high regard person. Obviously have respect for them, but show that you're on the same level as them. And if we can give some practical applications of when courage is what is courageous for us? I mean, we're just college students. We're not, we're not running into battle uh, every day. But like public speaking, things like that. Everyone is terrified of public speaking. But when you realize, when you realize that everybody is terrified of public speaking, all you have to do is show that you're not, and people automatically will respect you for that. Yeah, I I participated in a debate on campus with the political science club. I'm not in it, but I got roped in by my roommate, and it was on abortion. So it was uh, pro-life versus um, anti-life. What's that? Anti-life, pro-life <laughs> versus anti-life. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was well. It was more like a, on the legal side of things, so it's tough to say they were pro and they were pro-choice. But um, it was uh, it was the first time I've ever done a formal debate like that, and I was super nervous. And when I, once I got up there, I was like. Oh, everyone else is super nervous too. <laughs> so if I can just pretend a little better than them, like I'll win, <laughs> you know? So that was, that was very fun. Yeah. And going into like job negotiations, job interviews, it's the exact same way. The person across from you is a human. There is no such thing as somebody that doesn't have any fear at all, or that is comfortable in every single 
situation. So recognizing that, that's incredibly relaxing, knowing you're not the only one that's terrified of speaking or of going into a job negotiation or anything like that. Yeah, and I think that courage is also that when you get into those situations, you play to your strengths. So um, one of the ways that I'd like to approach a job interview is knowing what, like constantly hammering the, the selling point, which, you know, I will be good at this job because of my past experience with this. Hammer that. Just hammer that what you're strong with. And then be open and admit what you're not as strong with. And don't just make up one of those stupid, well, I mean, my biggest weakness is that I work too hard. <laughs> I've been, I don't ever leave the office. It's like, come on. <laughs> Everyone has that answer, and it's not genuine. If you go in and say, like, yeah, honestly, this is one of the things that I'm not strong with like with my internship over the summer I wasn't very knowledgeable when it comes to the banking system but I know I knew exactly what I like what I wanted to get out of it so I said that and that was what I said as my weaknesses was I don't really know about these different products in banking so I'd like to learn about those things and I mean I got the internship but (laughs) and I think that they they respected that genuine approach as opposed to the scripted you know my weakness is actually a strength situation yeah being genuine is really interesting because i think it requires a lot of courage to be genuine because when you are genuine you're opening yourself up to criticism just by being genuine you are uh, being being vulnerable and when you don't have courage it's a lot harder to be genuine. I think that's something that I've noticed is like, if I'm constantly afraid of what people are going to think, if I'm genuine, then I'm going to be a lot more um, nervous than if I, if I'm not trying to hide anything, if I kind of like have a clear conscience going into it, then it's so much easier to act courageously and just be yourself, be genuine. And I think that that's, Kind of like what we've been talking about, just kind of tearing. Everything kind of plays off of each other. In a situation like where you're trying to show courage, you have to have the emotional intelligence to be afraid. Think about what you're afraid of, then channel that in a way of, this is what I want to learn more about, as opposed to, I'm really scared of this, and I'm going to let this, I'm not going to bring this up because I'm going to let this control me. And I, well, I mean, like, and if you're, and as, from a Catholic standpoint, that's what we do when it comes to confession. Confession is an act of courage because you're, first off, you're having to approach Christ through the priest and tell him the things that you are the most ashamed about. And you have to, these things that you don't want to talk about, you have to be brutally honest and and have the courage to say that. I mean, obviously the priest isn't going to show you any ire, but as humans, we believe that there that there's a potential for that. So, like, especially like if you haven't gone for a while, what you you always are afraid of going and doing that. 
But when you take that step and have that courage to do that, you break out of your comfort zone, you get in and you talk about that, you discuss ways that you can be better about that, you discuss what is the right mindset to have about certain sins, and then you leave as a better man with a clean soul and a new way to go about your life. And I think that that is ultimately the goal of having courage and being a man. And all of the things we've talked about so far is to have that goal of bettering everything, making things better. And I think your relationship with the priest is usually better too. If it's someone you go to consistently, they know where you're struggling. And so they can be a better friend and help you in that way too. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, I'd say that the, that all plays into, again, sacrifice with you're sacrificing your pride, you're sacrificing your comfort to get into this place where you're better. And, I mean, that's true at every level of life with whether you're standing up for the truth in little ways. At the risk that, like in, in a classroom, you could risk a professor disagreeing with you and putting a bad grade on an assignment. But you knew that going into it, and that was part of it, but you still express the truth. And a lot of times, even if they don't want to admit it, they will have more respect for you when you do that. Or they could channel it in the wrong way and then be afraid of the fact that you're standing up for what you believe in. Yeah, I think it's those little steps of everyday sacrifices, everyday um, denial of self, everyday death of your own pride is how you cultivate those ideas of humility, cultivate the virtue of courage, because that doesn't happen overnight. It takes that everyday um, grind pretty much to uh, build up that courage within you. And for us college students, particularly those that are single, that are looking for things to sacrifice for, or people that are preparing to get married, you can, when you, once you're married, you can't just flip a switch and then be ready to sacrifice yourself for your, for your bride. That has to be something that you've been working your life towards. And so as college students, we should be, we should be doing that right now. We should be figuring out how to uh, deny ourselves and sacrifice for things that are more meaningful than ourselves. Yeah, we really have the opportunity now to make easier the choices that will be very hard later on. So like self-denial, practicing courage, um, introspection, learning more about ourselves, all makes that difficult choice that will likely be inevitable in the future that much easier to make. Uh, still very hard, but that much easier. And in terms of like relationships, uh, either with friends or with uh, a spouse or, or whatever, it does take courage to, um, to be vulnerable because, and, and genuine, because there is like, if you just meet someone and you try to be, if you try, you try to be vulnerable about everything, you're going to scare them off. And so I know it's, it, 
it frustrates me because I'm someone who likes to go all in day one. Um, but I understand that that's not the case for many people. And certainly in like a dating and, and marriage relationship, you have to, the, the relationship can and should only bear that which it can, right? So the, the emotional weight can't be, isn't the same um, on like the third date as it is the third anniversary, you know, third marriage anniversary. So it, it does take time to build up relationships so that we can be vulnerable. Um, and it takes courage to push that boundary uh, with our relationships. It's like you, you act differently with your family than you do with your friends, right? It's because you know your family is not going anywhere, hopefully. Um, and certainly you act differently around God. Like you're saying with confession, like I know I can say things in that room that I wouldn't feel comfortable saying anywhere else because I know God's going to forgive me every time. And that's powerful. And so, yeah, that that sort of wraps it up. I'd say, yeah. I'd say so. And I think that there's an important distinction to be made between masculinity and femininity. And I think as men, we need to continue to learn more about that. I think we talked about, we brought up a lot of many of like, the problems that we have, and I think we came up with some solutions a lot through stories that we've discussed. Um, and I think we just need to keep learning and focusing on how we can be examples of that in our lives. And it doesn't have to be like a massive thing where you just go out in the middle of your campus and start screaming at people about they're going to hell. You know, I think you start with the little practical ways of actually being able to move in progress. Yeah, I, I don't have anything else to <laughs> add. I think we would commission all men listening to um, stay steady the course. Um, look to Christ as, as your model. Develop in yourself uh, self-knowledge emotional intelligence, self-control, the ability to stand firm on your beliefs and be courageous in the, fa in the, in the sight of fear and recognize that our ultimate goal is to not only lay down our life or die for Christ, but to live for Christ, to make every day a sacrifice. Uh, so I would commission all men to do that. And and women, help us. <laughs> Please help us. You, um, A good woman can raise up great men, um, whether that's uh, their husband or their children. I mean, it's part of why we do what we do as men is, is, for, is for you women. So, um, you know, bless you and, and keep, keep making us better. Thank you all for listening. Um, this has been a fun topic. We'll do one on uh, women maybe someday, someday <laughs> soon. Um, but have a blessed day.